0: If you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 4 um, as we continue our study of Philippians. To live is Christ. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at the pathway of contentment. Now, the last time we met two weeks ago, we looked at uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 9 about the pathway of peace. And so I'll read that in just a second. But this morning, we're going to connect the idea of peace with Contentment, there is a close connection between those two. Those that are not at peace cannot be content, and those that are not content cannot be at peace. Now we defined, for those that might not have been here, we defined the peace of God, we defined the abiding peace of God in the life of a believer as the settled disposition of the soul. That rests and trust in God no matter the circumstance. That's what it means to be to have the present and abiding peace of God in your life. That you rest in Him. You've settled it in your soul that you rest and trust in God no matter what you're going through. And so it is a soul, the soul that's at peace, is a soul that trusts God's good plans for His children even in the midst of the difficulties and uncertainties of life that we all have to face. Anyone who says that walking with Jesus is easy or this life is, does not have its share of hardship and toil and struggle is not selling you what the Bible is selling you, okay? That's what the Bible says. The peace, and so what we've looked at last time was this, this peace, this abiding peace of God, it shows up in our lives in the way, particularly in the way that we pray That we pray with thanksgiving and confidence. That we fill our lives with the thoughts of the glory and goodness of Christ. And then that peace will spill over into how we live before others. Now, what that peace, that trust, and that confidence should produce in us is contentment. It should produce contentment with our station in life. So that means whatever that might be, whether that's poverty or riches, whether that's in sickness or in health, in death or in life. For the believer, instead of our lives being marked and controlled by anxiety and fear, they should be characterized by peace and contentment in God's sure providence for his children. One of my favorite uh, hymns, modern hymns, one of the songs that's been written in the last 15 years, is a song called Christ My Hope in Life and Death. I just want to read you what the first verse says of this song. Henry, we can sing this anytime you want, okay? Christ My Hope in Life and Death. and it, It carries this idea of peace and contentment. It says, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O sing hallelujah, now we ever confess... Christ is our hope in life and death now if that is true there should be a measure of peace and contentment in our lives so let's look at Philippians chapter 4 I'm going to back up to verse 4 and begin reading there and we'll focus on verses 10 through 13 he says there he says there beginning back in verse 4 he says rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And what will happen then? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and what will happen. And the God of peace will be with you. Now look at verses 10 through 13. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of His Word. I want to point out three things in the pathway to contentment and they all have to do with Jesus being the center. So the first is this. I want you to notice Paul uh, Paul tells us that in verse 10, we should have a Christ-centered concern, particularly towards other believers. Look at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned before, but you had no opportunity. Now, First thing I want you to see here is this word revived here is a botanical term for those of you that love gardening. The word revived is the word that's used in the Greek to to speak of a plant blooming after a period of dormancy. So Paul is saying here that what appeared to be a winter period of the Philippians' concern for him, that their concerns seemed to lie dormant, in this winter phase, that now all of a sudden it has burst forth and the bloom has opened and Paul has now been revived because of their concern for him. Now Paul knows that they loved him. But apparently something had happened and they didn't have an opportunity to show that love and concern. Now, but I want you to put yourself in this position here. Imagine Paul, remember he's writing from prison and so he's surrounded and he's in this dark and dank prison surrounded by Roman guards so this isn't a picture of a springtime garden right but all at once Paul in this prison Epaphroditus walks in from Macedonia he walks in carrying a gift of love to care for Paul's physical needs he comes as a messenger and minister of the, of the Philippians' concern for Paul. And you have to remember, this is important because in the Roman prison system, they didn't provide you food and your necessary what you needed for life. It was up to your friends and family to provide that for you while you were in custody. And so here comes in Epaphroditus. and that moment, Paul's heart bursts in rejoicing. Because he knows that there are those out there that are concerned for him. Now, second, I want you to notice that what revives here is their concern for Paul. This word has a very important meaning in the book of Philippians. All right, This, this, book, this word appears at least ten times in this letter. It has to do with, the, the word concern is also translated mind in Philippians. It's also translated as attitude. It's also translated as thinking, and feeling all in this letter. It's the Greek word for neo. Let me just give you a quick summary if you haven't been here. Paul used it back in chapter 1 verse 7 to say that he was right to be filled with affections for the Philippians. He has concern for them. He's right to have them. He says it over in chapter 2 verse 2 that believers should have the same mind and be of the same accord together. They should have the same concerns for one another. In chapter two, verse five, he says that we should have the same mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, to have the same concerns that Jesus had. He says in chapter three, verse fifteen, that those of that are mature should think the same way about pressing on towards the upward call in Christ Jesus. And now, and then, in verses four and two, in chapter four, verse two, when you have Euodia and Syntyche fighting with each other. What does Paul tell them? That they should agree. They should have the same mind in one another. They should agree in the Lord. They should have the same concerns that Christ has. So right here, Paul says the Philippians' concern has blossomed again and their gift through Epaphroditus is proof of their love for him. Here's what that means. I want you to think for me. Let's put our thinking caps on. Christ has opened the hearts of the Philippians not only to love Jesus, but to love those that Jesus loves. Let that sink in for a second. What has happened is that Paul, as Paul is saying that Christ has not only opened the hearts of the Philippians, it's not only blossomed into loving for Jesus, it has blossomed into loving for others. This means you cannot love Jesus And be unmoved by the circumstance and condition of other believers. If the love of God has blossomed in your heart for Christ. It must blossom towards other believers. Christian compassion overflows the heart. With genuine concern for the well-being of others. Especially those that are enduring hardships. Not because of their own not because of their own doing or because of their own choices, but their hardships are for the sake of the gospel and its spread among the nations. You notice that? That's what's happening here. Paul is in prison, not because he's made stupid decisions or he's failed to to, uh, carry out his social obligations of being a good citizen. No, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. And Paul says that You have to be concerned for the well-being of believers who are advancing the gospel. We have to share in this burden together. But third, notice that the Philippians' revived concern does something to Paul. It causes him to rejoice. Their love for him and concern for him has ministered to Paul's heart. It's caused him to rejoice in the Lord. So what does Paul do? He follows his previous command in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that's exactly what Paul does. He rejoices in the Lord right here. Is it any wonder that this letter is filled with such joy? You can't read the, the letter of Philippians without seeing that everything about it is marked with Christian joy because of what God has done in the lives of the Philippians and in Paul's own heart. What we learn here is that Christ's concern for his children led the Philippians to share in that concern to meet the needs of Paul. Think about this. One Christian receives what he needs. Paul needs to be cared for. So one Christian receives what he needs only because another Christian was willing to be concerned for them. God met Paul's needs through others. Which means God blesses others through our obedience and our concern. We share in God's program of taking care for, of His children when we're moved with compassion and concern for their plight such that we live open-handedly towards them. That is what we see here. You cannot share in Christ Christ. And not share in his concern for others. A concern that leads us to sacrifice and give for the glory of Jesus and their good. This is what James says, by the way. Let me point out James chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Christian concern leads to action. And that's what, it, that's what we see here in the Philippians. So first, Christ-centered concern. Secondly, Christ-centered contentment. Look at verses 11 and 12. Christ-centered contentment. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, the first thing Paul does here in verses 11 and 12 is he wants to clear something up. Alright? He wants to make sure that the Philippians understand that he is rejoicing at their generosity. He is. He's rejoicing at their generosity. But at the same time, he doesn't want to give the impression that the Philippians owed him anything. This church doesn't owe Paul anything. Right? Paul guarded at all costs the accusation that he was only starting churches to mooch off of them financially. Paul wasn't going around saying, hey, I started that church, you owe me money. Hey, I started that church, send me me your money. That's not what Paul was doing. In fact, he was proud all throughout Acts. Paul was proud to work as a tent maker and leather worker to provide for his own needs by the sweat of his own brow. And so he was proud to provide for his own needs, but at the same time, he would rejoice at the generosity of others. But he didn't want to compel them to give. Notice Paul doesn't compel the church. You have to do this. You must give me this because you owe me something. You owe me a debt that must be repaid. No, Paul wanted them to give out of a heart of grace and gratitude. That's how you give, that's how we give. Not because you're compelled to or because you owe. Grace that is given incurs no debt. That's not how grace works. In fact, Paul had bragged on the Philippian church in his letter to 2 Corinthians about how they gave out of grace, not out of compulsion. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 8. He's writing to the church at Corinth about the church in Philippi. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God "...that has been given among the churches of Macedonia." That's Philippi. "...for in a severe test of of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part." That's crazy. Joy and poverty led them to generosity. That's not usually what happens. Poverty usually doesn't lead to generosity, but it does in, in Philippi. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. That means Paul didn't beg them or coerce them. They did it because they wanted to. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So Paul doesn't want them to think that, that, he wants them to know he's grateful, but they didn't owe him anything. But then after Paul clears that up, look what Paul says. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now here's what you need to know. Here's what you and I need to know. What the main thing here that has to be stressed, you have to take this home with you, write this down. Paul says that contentment must be learned. What does he say? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment isn't a feeling. It's, you have to learn it. So Paul places the stress here on the personal pronoun. He says that he himself has learned contentment. So as a believer, this means you must learn it too. This must be an aim and a goal for the believer to pursue So every situation, every situation in your life is an opportunity either to be contented or discontented in Christ Jesus. After all, who is it that governs this universe and your life? So every situation you find yourself in is either a situation to be content in Jesus as Lord or discontented and falling into unbelief that he is not a good father who can take care of his children and provide for us in every situation. So, this means that contentment is a discipline to be cultivated and grown in our lives. The more you mature in Jesus, the more you learn and practice contentment, the more contentment you should enjoy. So, Paul addresses Timothy with this same truth. Remember, Timothy's his young protege, and listen to what Paul says to him in in what he writes to Timothy. He says, Godliness With contentment is great gain. Godliness and contentment. So contentment has to be learned. And there's something to it that gives us something spiritually. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And then Paul, so what Paul does here is he's telling Timothy to learn something. Timothy, you, me, learn that you have to learn contentment in whatever the Lord has provided for you. Learn to be content. You must learn this. Now, secondly, there's a second truth about contentment here. Not only must you learn it, notice the, the second point that Paul stresses. Paul stresses that contentment can be found in any situation. That's hard to believe. But contentment can be found in any situation. Look what he says. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any in every circumstance, you can circle that. In any, I think any means any, and I think every means every. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul says here this is a promise of God that you can be content in having much and in having little. We can be content in being brought low or being exalted. This all means that contentment is not tied to what you have or don't have. Don't believe that lie. Contentment has nothing to do with what you have or don't have. That's not where it's found. You must learn contentment. To quote Cheryl Crow, the famous philosopher, it's not having what you want, it's wanting what you've got. It's also a good song she wrote. But that's the issue, right? So in a sense, here it is, if you are in Christ, you will never find yourself in a place where you cannot find contentment in him. It's a discipline that we learn, that we practice, that we relearn and we repractice, that we relearn again and we repractice as disciples. Now let me try to give a few illustrations to help you here. We all face the temptation to search for contentment in this world, in our things, don't we? Isn't that what our culture does? That's what every advertisement on TV is about. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you peace and contentment through a product that will be obsolete in six months of you buying it, if you're lucky. The issue here is that God did not make us for this world or for the things of this world. C.S. Lewis warned in the Screwtape Letters. He says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he's finding his place in it while really it's finding his place in him. Think of this, guys. High school students, really think about this. College students, I need you to think about this. Elementary students, learn to think about this. Think of how often you've had this thought cross your mind. If I only had that new phone, I'd be content. If I only had that job, I'd be content. If I only had that relationship, I'd be content. If I only had that position or that promotion or that degree or if I hit it big in the lottery, if UT had one good season or if the Titans didn't blow it in the playoffs every year. Now, y'all all laughing, but it hurts, doesn't it? Listen, the list goes on and on and on. That's what it does. The truth is that none of those things can get you what God only designed for you to have in Jesus. That's contentment. Now, I read a funny story. It says uh, there was a devout Quaker. Quakers have pledged themselves to simplicity and There was a devout Quaker who was watching his new neighbor move in next door. And after all kinds of modern appliances and electronic gadgets and plush furniture and costly wall hangings had been carried in, the Quaker called out to his neighbor and he said, If you find you're lacking anything, neighbor, let me know, and I'll show you how to live without it. We need more of that kind of simple but rugged contentment in our lives. It's a law of the soul, it seems. It's a law of the soul that it seems that the more stuff we acquire, the less contentment we find. Contentment is a rare rare jewel indeed here in the rich and affluent USA. I have found much more of it in the dirt huts of Honduras and Venezuela and in the poor of Haiti than I found here in West Tennessee. And here's the issue. When all you have is Jesus you learn something, you learn that Jesus is enough. Wouldn't it be nice for us to learn some of that? When all you have is Jesus, you learn that He is enough. I I have a question for you. Believer, have you learned contentment? Are you practicing contentment in Christ in all circumstances? Do you trust his goodness and provision in your life? It's Christ-centered contentment, whether you have much or little. It's Jesus is Lord. I trust him. I can be content to sit on my porch with a cup of coffee under the peace and mercy of Jesus. And all is well in the world. We need more of that. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. and You'll find rest. You'll find Peace you'll find contentment in me. Not in things, but in a person. That's what we need. And then finally, I want you to notice Paul's Christ-centered confidence. Look at Paul's confidence in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now we get to the bottom of it, right? Now we get to the full confidence of Paul. Paul tells us here where the source of his strength and contentment lies. And it lies in Jesus, who is the anchor of his soul. And I want to say here that this might be the most misused verse in all of the Bible. Right up next to the misuse of Jesus saying, judge not. You know that's not all Jesus ever said, right? Okay? Paul is arguing here that he can find contentment in whatever situation he is in because Jesus is with him in every situation, That's why he can find contentment. Jesus is there to support him and give him grace and strength that he needs to persevere. The whole letter of 2 Corinthians is a test case of Philippians 4.13. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians. Flip over there right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn over right now. I want to hear pages turning or make beeping sounds as you touch your phone. Beep, 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 beep. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're there, say Amen. If you're not there, say, hold on. Hold on. Okay, good. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We need to learn some stuff from here about Paul and strength and circumstances. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Paul says this. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. That's where the power comes from. He says, we are afflicted in every way. But not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, this I'm now in verse, uh, verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, let's skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then listen to this crazy sentence. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's saying, man, life sucks sometimes, but God gives me the strength that I need. And one day he's gonna make it right. Now go go to chapter 6. Skip over to chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look what Paul says here about, about his condition in finding contentment. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault can be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, Hunger, yeah, Paul, that sounds like a great path to peace and contentment. I want some of that. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look what he keeps going. He says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors yet are true, as unknown, yet known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and possessing everything, because I have Jesus. And then skip over to chapter 11. Last one. And I'll wrap this up. Chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the same Paul of Philippians 4, 13. Look what he says in chapter 11, beginning at verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He says, who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast at the things that show my weaknesses. Now here's the question. Do you see and feel in these texts where Paul's strength comes from? Paul knows he will never enter a situation where the grace of Christ and the strength of Christ will not be sufficient. He knows that. And that's why he can be content in every situation. Because he will not go into one without Jesus. Even when he is weak, Christ Jesus is strong. There is no place Christ will lead where his grace and strength will not keep you. This one verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, would be better translated for our modern sensibilities to state, I can endure all things Through him who strengthens me. And all of that can be summarized in one simple phrase that we sang repeatedly earlier Christ is enough for me. He is everything that I need. Christ is enough. He's enough for Paul. He's enough for me. He's enough for you. He's enough for your family. He's enough for the entire world. Jesus is sufficient. Now, as I conclude, notice those three things, concern, contentment, and confidence. That's what's in this text. Now, let me work it in reverse for you. I'm going to preach the whole thing backwards very quickly. Because I am confident in Christ's love and provision for me, no matter my circumstance, because Jesus will give me the strength that I need and the grace that I need, what I can do is I can have contentment In whatever he provides. Or doesn't provide. I can be content. I can enjoy the peace and contentment of Jesus day by day. And because I am content in Christ's provision and strength. I can be open handed and generous towards others. Out of a genuine concern for their well being. This is what the Philippians have been doing. I can allow Christ's provision to flow through me towards them. I can give, I can be content and give away what I have for the glory of God and the good of others. But let me say where this all starts. This all starts first with a relationship to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you can't have the peace of God because you don't have peace with God. You see, because of your sin, you were separated and alienated from God. And you must be forgiven. You must be born again. You must repent of your sins and come to Jesus. And only then can you have the peace with God that will lead you to be content in your station in life. So if you don't know Jesus, you cannot know peace or contentment. And you know that because you go to bed with yourself every night. You know the weight of your own conscience. You know the feeling of being separated from God because of your sin. You know the feeling of your prayers hitting the ceiling and seeming like no one is listening. Fall on Jesus. Jesus says, come to me and you'll find rest. But if you're a Christian, you need to learn contentment. This is a daily discipline of falling before Christ day by day saying, this is a day you have made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, and whatever comes, I receive it as a gift of your hand, and I will walk in your grace until the day you take me home. May we all experience that kind of contentment. We're going to have, I'm going to pray, and we'll have a brief time of invitation. Father, I ask now that you would speak to our hearts from your word, that we will be challenged to find our greatest contentment in Jesus, that he is enough for our minds, our hearts, and our souls. And Father, forgive us when we look for a thousand different ways to find contentment in this world, when, Father, it is all that we need is Jesus. So, Father, draw near to us now and speak to us for Christ's sake. Amen.